Hi, Michael. What's so funny? Me. Myself. You're just giggly. I'm feeling. just giggling at how all the funny things I say and do. Are you having a, a good day? Good weekend? Yeah, I am having a good day. I um I went to see a very strange musical last night. Oh. Local production of a new musical, which was about the life of Artemisia Gentileschi, the Renaissance painter who painted very famously a painting of Judith beheading Holofernes. She was like one of the only well-known woman Renaissance painters, and she had like a very dramatic life story, and this musical was about it. It was cool. It was a wild theatrical experience. You've been going to a, a lot of like feminist radical theater productions recently. I, I mean, noticed. this is just this is just the second one. I went it was with I went with the same friend to the same place to see this one. So okay. it's really not like very much of a trend so much as it is like just me and this one friend have been going to see shows at this one theater company. Is this your lesbian theater friend? Yes, it is who you've met. I like to think she's all of our lesbian theater friend. That's like maybe something that every town should have, you know, like a librarian. At least one. There's one in every town. Michael. Oh, yes. Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm good. Grunge Girl and I put in a fence around our Ooh. garden. I got five foot like deer fence kind of thing. And it involves a lot of zip ties and a lot of T-posts. Did you get a post driver or did you dig post holes? I used um, a log, actually, to smack Wild. the T-posts into the ground. Wild. Driving T-posts with a post driver is very fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we were being smart, we would have gone out and just bought one. Right. But we were just there. And you were like, we've got logs at home. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing you can't handle with a simple log. So I took the end of the log and just like yeah. dropped it. And just smacked the T-post. Just tea smacked post. the T-post into the ground. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then, you know, zip-tied a bunch of fence to it. And then we're going to bury the metal, you know, skirt fence around it mm -hmm. to keep to the rabbits. To protect your garden from pests. Yep. Yep. So. Cute. Love that for you. I'm getting really excited about bees. Are you going to keep bees? Grunge Girl's pretty is getting into bees. She's going Whoa. down a bee rabbit hole. I'm excited about bees. Yeah? Now. It's yeah, okay, good. Yeah. I have kept bees a little bit before, and it's the coolest. Yeah, so maybe there'll be bees in our life. Wow. Which would be wild. We thought that would be like a good step. We have a dog. Now we have a house. Right. And then bees, and then maybe ducks after bees right bees would be the first thing you've gotten that you can't leave unattended or take with you right right it's kind of hard to like divide up the bees yeah <laughs> you know? put them in your carry-on bags on the plane right 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 yes i'd like to check this suitcase full of bees it's the next level of commitment for sure it's right bees. right moving in together and then getting bees together because like if it all goes to shit who gets the queen right <laughs> i want the queen that's the question. Who gets the queen in a settlement? Well, you know, it's it's unfair, but often, you know, it's the woman who gets the the queen bee. Right. You know, it's a little biased. Statistically, statistically speaking. Statistically speaking. Michael, what are we recording this intro for? 
<laughs> oh, We've right. Been speaking for so many minutes without saying anything about what we're doing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so today's episode is a special episode. Special episode. We brought on a guest to interview. That guest is Professor Martha Nussbaum, a professor of philosophy and law. She's like kind of a big deal or something. It's true. I learned she was a big deal moments before we recorded this episode. And then I looked her up and I was like, oh. I mean, I read some of her stuff in preparation for the episode because I wanted to be able to ask competent questions. But somehow when I was reading her stuff, I didn't like read any press about her. Anyway, irrelevant. Well, the things maybe listeners should know about Martha Nussbaum, she was probably one of the most well-known female scholars of Greek philosophy early on in the 80s. She converted to Judaism and writes a lot about ethics and moral philosophy from a liberal perspective. Right. And what is this show if not an opportunity for us to wax poetic about ethics? Yeah, basically. So I figured, oh, there you go. Ace has something Ace, Ace, Ace was just licking He literally the has put his paw on me like, mom, look at me. <laughs> oh. Stop ignoring me. Puppies are great. But anyway, yeah, so Martha Nussbaum came on. We talked to her, and uh, we hope you like the conversation. Anything else listeners should know? No, I loved this conversation, and I think you all will as well. So enjoy. Yeah, enjoy. Martha Nussbaum is an internationally renowned philosopher whose work has covered many subjects, including ethics, law, political science, emotions, the classics, feminism, and human rights. She has published over 500 articles and over two dozen books, including The Fragility of Goodness, Luck and Ethics, and Greek Tragedy and Philosophy, Sex and Social Justice, Hiding from Humanity, Disgust, Shame, and the Law, From Disgust to Humanity, Sexual Orientation and Constitutional Law, and most recently, Justice for Animals, Our Collective Responsibility. She is the current Ernst Freund Distinguished Service Professor of Law and Ethics, appointed in the Law School and the Philosophy Department at the University of Chicago. I'm Michael. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm delighted to be there, yeah. Hava is my co-host. Hello, I'm Hava. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. What is? I can't read your tattoo. It says dead something. Oh, this tattoo says dead chic. Oh. One of many tattoos hidden below the camera line. So thank you for coming on the show. We'll start off by asking, hi, how are you? Well, I'm fine. It's Memorial Day and it's a beautiful sunny day and uh, I feel really relaxed and happy. Well, that's great. That's perfect. Yeah, we're happy to have you on. Part of the reason why we wanted to have you on is we're mostly a Talmud podcast. We discuss Talmud from a kind of a modern LGBTQ queer perspective, but we've been slowly exploring ethics and Jewish ethics. And we wanted to have you on because you're, of course, a philosopher of ethics and you are also Jewish. You converted to Judaism in your 20s. Right. I was hoping that you could share that with our listeners, what that process was like and if there are any connections between how you think about ethics and Judaism and what appealed to you about Judaism. Okay, great. Well, I guess I want to start by saying that my thinking about LGBT issues and, and justice began before my conversion, quite quite a bit before, because I wanted to be an actress when I was a kid. And I first discovered the injustice toward LGBT people when I was a young actress at, at the Berkshire Playhouse. Uh, and I'm straight, so I had this huge crush on an actor there who's still alive. His name is Herb Foster, a wonderful comic actor. 
And then I realized that he was gay. And I had hardly even encountered that, you know. But his boyfriend arrived in town. And I noticed that they were, they had shared rings and they were really a, a solid couple. And then I wondered, why is it that they can be open in the theater context, but when they go back to their own home, they would not be? And, and so that be, it seemed crazy because all the, the straight men that I was meeting there, a lot of creeps, you know, and this guy was just so interesting and so nice and his treatment of his partner was so respectful. So that was really the first thing that started me thinking about this. And then also, I'm a scholar originally of ancient Greek philosophy. So in the course of that, uh, of course, one always looks for images of oneself in the texts one's studying. And I thought, you know, in the modern novels I read, I didn't see any images of the kind of relationship I wanted, which would involve a lot of reciprocity and sharing of ideas and joint aspiration to ideals. The straight relationships that are depicted in the great novels, as I'm sure you know, are pretty bad in that respect. But I found this in Plato. And here in the Plato's Phaedrus, I found a passionate sexual relationship combined with intellectual reciprocity and aspiration. And I thought, wow, this is terrific. And, and once again, why is this allowed in ancient Greece and not allowed today? And it just made me notice things around me that seemed totally wrong. Now, around that time, I started thinking about converting to Judaism. And the first reason was a, a kind of dissatisfaction with the Christianity of my day, because it didn't seem very interested in questions of social justice. I'll make one huge exception, which was the assistant minister at my Episcopal Church in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, was Frank Tracy Griswold, who died recently, who later became the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church of the United States. And he was the first one to allow the ordination of gay bishops. So Mr. Griswold, I knew he was different and he did stand for justice. But anyway, the church as a whole was a place you go to be looked at and seen, and it didn't seem very committed to justice. Whereas Judaism, as I knew it, was not only ritually and, and textually, but also culturally dedicated to social justice. The family of the man that I then married was a, a typical you know, left-wing New Jersey Jewish family of that era. We got married in 1969, where they read I.F. Stone in the Nation, and there was constant conversation about social justice. So I got married, mar married, and you know, partly the conversion was because his grandmother wouldn't accept me unless I converted. But I really wanted to do it anyway, and I was converted actually by a rabbi that the family knew, who happened to be Orthodox, although the family was not. But he was bored, and he knew that I wasn't going to be Orthodox, so he didn't spend much time instructing me in, in ritual and law. But we sat around and we talked about justice, and we talked about ethics, and we read Pirkei Avot. And uh, so, you know, once again, I, I thought Judaism is the place for me. It's the place that really cares about justice. And I've never stopped thinking that. Uh, you know, I belong to a reform congregation, KAM Isaiah Israel, in um, Hyde Park, Chicago, which has a long tradition of social justice. Our rabbi for a long time, and the rabbi who blessed me at my bat mitzvah, I had an adult bat mitzvah there, was Arnold Jacob Wolf whose writings are, are widely read in Reform Judaism. And he was one of the great preachers of social justice in Reform Judaism. I loved Arnold. And our current, uh, well, we're searching for a rabbi, so we don't have a rabbi right now. But our cantor, whom I adore, and I sing in the choir and so forth, David Berger, 
is in fact a, a gay man married to a man who's a rabbi at a different synagogue, a conservative synagogue on the north side. And he is, to me, a true model of commitment to social justice, as well as of music and wonderful singing, musical excellence. He preserves lost Jewish music from Europe. He excavates it, finds lost wax recordings, and then is able to score it and notate it, and we sing it. So he's a wonderful man. So I think, you know, our congregation, partly because of him, but of course, before that too, because we hired him, uh, aspires to inclusion and a, a complete model of social justice. And I love David Berger. I think he's one of the most inspiring people in my world. I remember going to Israel quite recently, and I, I was getting an honorary degree at Hebrew University. And we were asked each to say a little speech about what what moves us in Judaism. And I had to say, it's my the inclusiveness and the commitment to justice in my congregation, which of course was quintessentially reform and not like anything that can flourish in, in Israel. But but I did say that. And then a lot of people came up to me, including you know, other honorary degree recipients, whom I won't name because I don't have their permission, but famous Israeli Jews, who said, yeah, I wish we had that in Israel. So it was really, really great. Since you've had this long and beautiful journey with Judaism and its inclusiveness and commitment and justice, do you feel like the ethical tradition in Jewish text and in Jewish community has influenced your work in philosophy and ethics, or have you sort of stayed rooted in, in primarily the Greek work? Well, you know, it influences me when I think about justice in the abstract. Textually, I feel my Hebrew is pretty bad. <laughs> I mean, when I had the adult bat mitzvah, I learned a lot of cantillation because I am an amateur singer, and that was what particularly interested me. But I still, you know, I, I can't really view myself as a scholar of Hebrew texts. And I don't like to write about texts that I can't command as a scholar because I know what it is to command an ancient language. So when I write, um, you know, when I write about justice more generally, I, I do feel that I'm imbibing the spirit of those texts. And whenever I give a Devar Torah, I like to focus on themes of justice. And of course, it's not always in harmony with the text. And as you know, we Reformed Jews can always say, well, this text was historically there, but it was pretty bad and the ethics in it is bad. So I often find myself saying that sort of thing about texts that demean women or whatever. But anyway, you know, we're all thinking about justice and we think about particularly, I guess the texts that I'm most in harmony with are the ones that in, in, that in, instruct us to support the poor and to give to the poor. And the part of Isaiah that says, is this the fast that I have commanded, et cetera, et cetera. That is a, a part that I usually give a Devar Torah on, on the high holy days, or else I sometimes can you know, sing it in terms of cantillation. So that text particularly inspires me. And I, I do feel that that's what me, makes me a reformed Jew, because I think that the fast that's really asked of us is where you dedicate your life to, in some way, improving the life of the excluded or the poor, anyone who has unusual need and exclusion. And that is what I try to do in my academic work, which is focused on themes of justice Right now, it's justice for non-human animals, who are certainly the most excluded in all legal regimes around the world. So anyway, that, that imperative to lift up the ones who are lowly and excluded, that is the main thing that connects me to the text. 
a lot of, of your work is trying to tease apart what the best moral judgments should be and trying to get to the root causes of why someone might want to make one moral decision over another. And a lot of that is grounded, it seems like, in liberal philosophy. And I'm wondering if you ever think about the origins of morality or goodness, if you think about the metaphysical origins of morality and goodness, or if it comes from a divine source, or do you try to frame moral questions as ultimately coming from a more worldly source? Well, what I think and what I frame are, are actually two different things. Because as a political philosopher, I follow John Rawls in thinking that political principles should not be based on any single metaphysical or religious tradition so that they can be inclusive of everyone in a pluralistic society. So the political principles must be framed in a way that's, as it were, both shallow and thin, not including absolutely everything I think about, but also not including the deeper metaphysical justifications that I might feel. So what do I really think? Well, I'm, I guess I would say I'm agnostic, which is a perfectly familiar and mainstream position in Reform Judaism. You know, Isaac Mayer Wise, who founded the Reform Seminary in Cincinnati, declared publicly that he didn't believe in a personal God and that he was a Spinozist and so forth. And some other rabbis said, well, I don't agree with you, you know, but they didn't say, oh, that's terrible. We won't accept you. So I, I hold what I think is a pretty mainstream position in, in being agnostic, but thinking with hope. Uh, and I think one, okay, let me talk about hope. I think in this world where we really can't know with certainty the ultimate truths that we would like to know, it's very important for us to proceed with hope because hope enables us to be motivated to change things and to make them better. Immanuel Kant said, for that reason, we're under a moral obligation to cultivate hope in ourselves, even though no sufficient reason can be found for the hope that we might have. And, and so that, I think, is what makes me think that there is some ultimate source of goodness in the world. And I think it's really in, not just in the human being, but in the animal kingdom too, the, the desire to care for others, to support offspring, to include those who are weak. And boy, other species do this better than we do a, a lot of times. I saw a pack of wild dogs in Botswana that when a dog was handicapped or injured, they wouldn't just leave that dog behind. They would get the prey and then they would give it to the ones who were lagging behind. So that is, you know, it's a principle that's ingrained in our animal humanity. And I have to say, I think the worst things that are in our humanity are not our animal heritage, they're cultural. Because if you look at animals, sure, there's aggressiveness, but aggressiveness directed at self-protection and feeding and so forth. And there's no animal species that tortures other animals for sheer pleasure. There's no animal species that systematically makes war on other animals again and again and finds that it's a nice way of life. And here on Memorial Day, you know, when we're all thinking, and I was glad to see that my morning classical music station was playing music directed at peace, study war no more, Pete Seeger, Seeger was singing, you know, that that's something human beings need to learn. But most other animals do not. The great primatologist, Franz Duval, his first book was called Peacemaking Among Primates. And he pointed out that the bonobos, who are the closest genetically to us of any primates, even closer than chimpanzees, they have many, many ways of making peace if there's conflict. And the main way that they do it 
is not through hierarchy, but through sexual activity, which diffuses aggression. So, you know, what happens is the female initiates sex and the males, you know, forget about their aggression and they make love, not war, as, as developed. <laughs> so, you know, when you look at the animal kingdom, sure, I mean, chimps are more aggressive, etc., but they're not aggressive in the way that humans are, dragooning whole populations into the study of war. So in the middle of war, as we are today in the world, I think it's very important to, to think that's the pathology of our humanity. And I think it's not what God would have commanded. And, you know, that's one place where I most differ with the text, I have to say. So Berger and I have had a whole public event about divine anger, where he, he's more sympathetic with divine anger. But I think to think of God as a retributive God who asks us to follow that model and strike back and punish the ones who do do us wrong is, is a very bad model of God. I'm just now writing a book, finishing a book, about Benjamin Britten's War Requiem. He was a conscientious objector in World War II, and I do not agree with that. I do think there are times when you have to fight in defense of your country and your own, but not with the enthusiasm, the glee in war making that is usually shown. So when he starts setting texts from the Requiem Mass, which include the medieval hymn, the D-A-C-R-I, the Day of Wrath, where God is depicted as enjoining wrath and modeling wrath, uh, you know, he sets this to the same music he has just used to depict the horrors of war. And I think he was absolutely right in giving that signpost that we should not think of God in that way anymore. Now, by that time, the Anglican church that he was writing for had already dropped all such pictures of God. And if you look at the funeral of Elizabeth II, there's not one word about divine punishment, et cetera, et cetera, but only about mercy and reconciliation. But the Roman Catholic Church took a little bit longer, but by Vatican II, they too, they completely got rid of the DACRI, said it's a really sick model of God. So I, you know, I think Judaism is so pluralistic that it hasn't happened religion-wide, but certainly I would say in our congregation it would be a very common position to think that the, those parts of the text represent not, not an archaic image of God because it's all too contemporary, but an image that we should reject. Because Reformed Judaism is so flexible, there's a lot of debate going on about how to live the good life and how we should be making moral judgments in particular cases or generally. I wonder what you see the added benefit of Judaism is over, say, being involved with an activist community or just being in dialogue with moral philosophers. Is there something that Judaism provides that those secular social activities don't provide? That is a great question. Actually, the topic of my last Devar Torah, in fact, because I, I was talking once again about the Isaiah passage and saying, well, it's very easy to say what we all ought to do as human beings. But then the question is, why should we go to synagogue uh, to do that? And, and I, I think the answer is that each person should find their own path. Uh, but what I feel is that, like a busy person of today, I'm always beset by distractions, and it's very hard to meditate and think about ethics and to think about it uh, in a productive a way that's productive of good actions all on my own. I just won't take the time to do it. Now, of course, my work is about ethics, but that's work still, and it, it's not me pondering my own life. So I find the main reason I would go to synagogue is it's what actually, again, Immanuel Kant said, that we, should, we have an obligation to join a community that supports our desire 
for the moral good. Now, he thought that community would have to be a religious one, held together by an idea of a higher power. I don't think that, and, he, and by the way, he certainly was in correspondence with Moses Mendelssohn, and Mendelssohn was saying, well, yes, the community that you really want is Judaism because it's more in tune with the rationalism you espouse than other religions. But anyway, I just think, well, many people will find other sources of community, but somehow those are all optional and they don't offer a complete structuring for the year. And I do find that the Jewish calendar with its cycle of different invitations to meditate and ponder is is really spiritually very, very helpful in going into oneself but doing it in company with others who who are in conversation with these same issues and talking about why these things matter and cultivating an awareness of one's own emotions, one's emotions of hope, of guilt, and uh, of course of grief when it's time for grief. I mean, my, my daughter died in 2019 at the age of 47. And I thought, you know, that was a time when I really felt the, the, the great need for the Jewish community. And since it was December 2019, what happened right after that was COVID, when I was separated from the community, but I was still online, and, and we had planned a memorial service, and so had to cancel it in 2020, had to cancel it again in 2021. But finally, in the spring, no, I guess it was the spring of 2022 that we finally had Rachel's memorial service, and I, I had a sense of completion and harmony because it was really important to me to bring everyone together to ponder those emotions in keeping with texts. But I also, of course, included texts from other traditions. My, my daughter and I are both very serious about music, so we made sure to include musical texts that both from the Jewish tradition, psalm settings, but also Mahler's, part of Mahler's Kindertotenlieder. Of course, he's he's a Jewish composer too. But anyway, we, we really um, focused on, on the themes of mourning and, and the meaning of a human life. And her life was dedicated to social justice. She was a lawyer for animal rights, and that's one thing that propelled me into this latest book as a way of keeping her issues alive and making my life contribute something to the meaning of her life. But in the memorial service, you know, we put that as part of the service. We played part of Sasson's Carnival of the Animals, all the pieces that made her smile and laugh. Because I do think a very important part of Judaism is shared humor. It's one of the best parts of David Berger that he's able not only to give sublime meaning to the most serious parts of the service, but to sing things from the Yiddish tradition that are hilarious and that bring us together through humor. So I tried to do that in the memorial service too. And, and I really feel that it's at those times in life, and of course, so we all have many such times, that religion is especially important. You know, it's interesting um, that you described yourself as an agnostic earlier, because listening to your description of your experience of Judaism and your opinions about sort of metaphysical origins of goodness feels like while you may describe yourself as not being sure whether there's a God or not, it sounds like from what I hear that there's a, a strong intuition of something out there, a source of goodness, of a connection that transcends the ordinary. I think a lot of people who describe themselves as agnostic don't really mean that when they say they're agnostic. Um, you know, they they don't have that strong um, that strong sense that it seems like you do. 
but it didn't I didn't say atheist I sure just meaning I, I don't know you know I have no reason to be sure but of course an intuition is is a very important thing and I have this intuition not so much about the meaning of the universe I don't really believe that the universe as a whole has any meaning but but rather about the meaning of animal and human lives. How have they come into being? What are they striving for? And I do believe that in those lives, whether it's because they evolved a certain way, but anyway, this is just the way they are. There's a meaning of compassion, of caring, of tikkun olam, you know, repair. And and I, I really feel that very strongly. If I can sort of bring up another topic, transitioning to like focusing explicitly on LGBT issues, I've been in preparing for this interview, reading a little bit about your work on the politics of disgust and of shame. I wonder if you could just start by telling our listeners a little bit about what that idea is and what connection it has to queer people. Yeah. Well, as I started working on the emotions, it came into my awareness that there was a lot of work starting up on disgust. And disgust is an emotion that plays a big role in law and policy. So the British Lord Devlin said that if you feel disgust at something, that's enough. You can make it illegal just because the majority feel disgust. And John Stuart Mill always said not. It had to be a, a harm, a cognizable harm to an individual. But Devlin, much later, he was explicitly opposing the decriminalization of same-sex activity. What had happened was that in the early 1950s, after the Second World War, there was an upsurge in persecution of gay men because, you know, same-sex activity between women was never illegal in Great Britain for some reason. They just didn't think it existed, I suppose. But anyway, they started enforcing the law, and lots of prominent people were arrested. And the great scientist, Alan Turing, who saved us all in the Second World War because he just broke the Enigma Code, and he was the one who basically invented artificial intelligence, one of the greatest mathematicians in world history. He was a gay man. And, you know, for a long time, he was pretty closeted, as most people were. But he never got married. He just didn't, he thought of that, but he just didn't think it would be the right way to treat the woman in question that he was thinking of marrying. And one day his house was burgled. Well, his, uh, a gay man that he knew and he had a relationship with said, you know, I know who burgled your house and here's the name. And so Turing called in the police and he says, I have a tip that this is the person who burgled my house. Oh, where did you get this tip? Oh, from a man that I've been seeing. He was very careless to say that. Mm. But he just thought, you know, knowing that he was the savior of Great Britain, that it would be okay. Well, then they arrested him, convicted him, and he was sentenced to chemical castration. And that was, you know, terrible, terrible thing. And shortly after that, he, he died. Now, I guess the majority view is that he committed suicide. There's a minority view that he accidentally poisoned himself with some poisons that he was experimenting with. But but in any case, he died and the country was really shocked. And so then they appointed the, the royal family in Britain has always been quite queer friendly. Queen Elizabeth herself, the Queen Mother, they've always helped these gay artists and Benjamin Britten was shielded by the royal family to a great extent. So anyway, they appointed a royal commission called the Wolfenden Commission, which studied the issue. Turing died in 1954. 1957, 
they recommended the complete decriminalization of same-sex activity unless there was coercion. Okay, so then a big public debate because people weren't ready for this. And on one side was this Lord Devlin who went around the world and he even came to my law school giving a lecture saying that disgust was the standard. And if the average man feels disgust, then we can make this illegal, even if it doesn't cause harm to non-consenting people. And his argument, such as it was, was that countries need solidarity. They can't get by on liberal principles alone. They need a kind of feeling solidarity. And if that's lost, we'd never be able to win another war. That's what he said. So anyway, that was one side of it. And on the other side was the great legal thinker, Herbert Hart, wrote some lectures, which now exist in the book, Law, Liberty, Morality. And Hart, as it much later emerged in an authorized biography, his widow authorized the use of his diaries. He was a closeted gay man who never had sex with another man, so far as we know. He got married, as was the, the imperative of the time. But after the exuberance of youth had faded, he just decided not to have sex with his wife. So, of course, she was unhappy. The children were unhappy. And um, his wife had affairs, and that was unhappy. So anyway, Jennifer, his widow, left his diaries to the biographer. And there were such moving passages about, it's only when I listen to the chamber music of Schubert that I can get a sense of what a flourishing life is. So anyway, he argued on the John Stuart Mill side that there has to be a harm, otherwise liberty should prevail. And eventually, he won the battle. And in 1967, so bear in mind that that's like almost 40 years before the United States decriminalized same-sex activity, Britain decriminalized same-sex activity. And Britain, who lived with a partner, Peter Pears, the great singer, through this whole period, he was very aware, of course, of stigma and fear and so on. And he lived to see the decriminalization. Retro, I should add that retroactively, they expunged the condition of Turing. And then in 2017, which was the 50th anniversary of the decriminalization, they expunged the convictions of all the people who had been convicted under that law. Now, disgust. Why is disgust a bad reason for lawmaking? That's the question that I wanted to address. And it turns out, there's a lot of good research on disgust, that it's not just a yuck feeling that's ingrained. It has a cognitive content, which is an avoidance of contamination by something that's seen as a bodily contaminant. So all kinds of interesting experiments are done, and I describe some of these in my book, where what you think you're eating or drinking makes a great difference in whether you react with disgust. You sniff the same smell, and if you're told that it's blue cheese, you generally think it's an okay smell, but if you're told it's feces, you react with disgust and many other things. So anyway, what disgust does is it constructs boundaries. And it's a way that human beings have of segmenting some parts of their world, certain animals, and then eventually certain aspects of human life as beneath the human. The human aspires to transcend the mere gross bodily decay. So it's things like feces and the corpse or anything that's perceived as similar to that that are the objects of what I call primary disgust. But then all societies have a way of extending that pernicious circle. Namely, they pick out groups of people in the society who come to symbolize the all-too-animal, the all-too-bodily, and they 
foist onto them, they project onto them these disgust properties. They smell bad, they're hypersexual, they're hyperanimal, and they emblematize for the dominant group the aspects of bodily animality that they want to flee from. So that's why I called that earlier book Hiding from Humanity. And so, you know, that's a mechanism of subordination all over the world. The groups that get it vary. So it, we actually had a big comparative disgust project with our center in New Delhi, where we compared disgust and its role in American racism, where, of course, Black people were typified as hyperanimal and in some way disgusting. You couldn't share water with them. You couldn't swim in the same pool, etc. And the caste system in India, which has very similar prohibitions, but they differ in some details. But anyway, gays and lesbians, interestingly, in India, until more recently, they were not subject to discuss prohibitions. It was an attempt to sort of assimilate Hinduism to Victorian Christianity that put that in there. But you know, the central way of subordinating LGBT people is to say that they're, oh, they're just animals and to say additional things like in, okay, so I got involved in the bench trial of Romer versus Evans, one of the key gay rights trials. I was mm-hmm. a witness on ancient Greek ethics as it happened. But anyway, what I found was that to pass these restrictive laws, they had circulated pamphlets saying that gay people eat feces and drink raw blood. So it's an evocation of disgust that subordinates. So anyway, my book uh, takes off from all of that, that past, and with the fact that eventually the Supreme Court said, if a law is motivated primarily by what Justice Kennedy called animus, but for various reasons that I give there, looking at the other cases he cited, I think it's disgust. And, uh, you know, that's not enough. That's not enough to make a law have even what's known as a rational basis. So I think the Supreme Court's jurisprudence in the gay rights area starts from a ban on mere disgust as a motive for lawmaking. And so I looked at that and, of course, looked at the whole history of sodomy laws and then eventually got to same-sex marriage issues. And Where, once again, even though there are lots of arguments that are put forward against same-sex marriage, the central issue is typically one of contamination. You find people say, oh, that will pollute my own marriage or make it tainted or stain it. And so so it's an irrational thought of contamination that's at the bottom of a lot of this stuff. And so my whole book says, you know, we got to get rid of that. And what do we want to replace that with? Well, the book is called From Disgust to Humanity, meaning the, the imagination of full humanity needs to be extended to everyone in the society not thinking of some people as mere animals. And of course, that's a central aspect of the subordination of women. Women have long been thought to be the mere bodily ones. They give birth and so on and so on. And the men are the ones, the people of spirit. And so, you know, we want to get rid of that too. But we want to then replace it by an idea of a compassion and an imagination of full humanity that extends to everyone in the society. So that is what the, the stuff on disgust is about. Now, more recently, of course, you know, the, the root of the whole thing is the desire to say, we're, we're not like those animals. So I've, I've tried to think about what lies behind our subordination of other animals. And of course, it's the same thing. We want to say we're immortal. We're just spirit. And there are those creatures over there disgusting because they're mere body. And so it's the hatred of embodiment, really. 
that I, I find all over the place. And I think hating the body is what we got to deal with, what we, we have to grapple with. We have to show people another image of the body that, that is illuminated with love. And that's that's really what my work on Disgust is about. I'm really reminded when you're talking about Disgust about The Road to Wigan Pier by George Orwell, when yes. he talks about how he kind of very frankly discusses how he was raised in sort of the equivalent of like an upper middle class society and was trained to sort of hate the smell of working class people and that he needs to put that hatred of the smell of working class people aside like that's not relevant to whether or not they deserve certain you know entitlements and things yes, like that yes yes that that's a great example and in fact uh, i would go even further and say you see the complete irrationality of discussed taboos from that example because if you've ever spent time in a middle class english household you discover something that you know to me is a bit disgusting namely when people wash dishes they don't rinse them in separate water. They fill up the sink with soapy water, then they wash the dishes in them, and then they just pull it out with not with no separate rinsing, put them in the dish rack, and dry them, let them dry in the air. So I thought, gosh, you know, you think the working class home is disgusting. Your home would probably have been very disgusting to me. And so the, all these things are cultural, and they're completely irrational. And the only questions to ask is, what, what do we do about it? And yes, I think Orwell was quite right to say class opprobrium and class subordination involve a lot of disgust. In, in our book, it's called The Empire of Disgust, the book that we did with the New Delhi Center, and it's Oxford University Press 2018. We do have an excellent article on class disgust by a legal philosopher named Laura Weinrib, who teaches at Harvard. So yeah, we were thinking about that one too. And disgust for people with disabilities is another thing that we talk about. And finally, disgust for the bodies of aging people. That's a huge one, because we're all terribly afraid of death. And so every society has taboos and disgust ideologies attached to wrinkles, sag, the alleged smell of age, etc. And you find this even in the medical profession, you know, where people really shun aging people and treat them very badly. I, I find as I as I age, I have a, a double vision in this respect because a lot of the doctors I see know who I am and they know I'm a well-known philosopher. And by those doctors, I'm treated with respect. But I also, in the process, see certain nurses are usually very good because they don't have this disgust education. But young male residents are the worst. They typically have a kind of snooty, slightly disgusted uh, attitude toward you, and they don't want to listen to what you say at all. So yeah, disgust at aging bodies. And I'm afraid that a lot of people even have self-disgust. I wrote a book called Aging Thoughtfully with my colleague Saul Levmore, where we talk about beauty norms, beauty taboos, and how we're all often trying to model this kind of ideal, pristine, immortal beauty, because society demands it. And so, of course, you know, who wants to count as, as ugly? And, and unfortunately, even in, in matters, bodily matters, we, we don't love our own bodies. When I was growing up, I was of the generation that read the book, Our Bodies, Ourselves, the great feminist Bible that said women should not be disgusted by their bodies, by their menstrual periods, by all the sticky, slimy stuff down there. But instead, look at it study it, get a speculum, look inside, and so on. And so we all 
had that injunction and we gave birth without anesthesia, et cetera, et cetera. But now when we come to have colonoscopy, I hear from my gastroenterologist, you know, 98% of people have to be completely sedated. And there's no need for sedation because there are no pain nerves in the colon. So there's absolutely no reason why you can't go through a colonoscopy with no sedation. I learned that early because I had a family history of colon cancer. And so I had my first one when I was 45 and I was going to a concert that night. So I said, well, I don't want to have sedation. Thank you. And it was fun. I enjoyed getting to know my insides. So now I always refuse it. But I hear from my doctor that not only do almost everyone has sedation, but a lot of people want complete general anesthesia. Of course, the hospitals are pushing this because they make more money that way, etc. But anyway, people don't want to come into contact with what Walt Whitman called the thin red jellies within you and me. They want to steer away from those red jellies and not to get to know themselves. So I think disgust is universal reflux of a kind of difficult relation to our embodiment and our mortality. It's perfectly understandable, but it's irrational and it's bad because we need to forge a much better, more positive relationship to all bodies, all human and animal bodies. You know, there are so many, so many different things that have come up for me to think about it in in talking about this. It's obviously really relevant for Judaism, which has a an elaborate purity code as sort of a central part of our tradition that mm-hmm. feels very connected to this. But what I'm thinking about most prominently is as a trans woman, when I hear you talk about the ways in which disgust helps people get distance from things that they don't want to think about or confront about their own embodiment. I'm really thinking about the enormous campaign against trans people that's going on internationally and nationally now, and specifically thinking about how in the trans community, it's it's common and, and I think right to say that for many cis people, one origin of disgust for trans people is that if they accept transness into their world, it would force them to confront things about their own gender that they don't want to confront. It would force them to confront maybe the social nature, maybe that, you know, there's a variety of aspects, but it feels very connected to what you're saying. Oh, yes, absolutely. And in fact, in our India book, we have two very good articles about transness in India, where they are ahead of where we are. And in fact, have recognized trans people as a third sex on passports. I don't think that's quite the right way to frame it. But anyway, that's what they did. You know, they did that even before they decriminalized same sex relations, very oddly. But yeah, I think it's, of course, gender is so fluid, and it's so complicated. And uh, recently, do you know who Deirdre McCloskey is? No, I don't. Deirdre is an economist who is a trans woman, but she her transition was way long ago. It was like in the 60s, and it was very hard, therefore. She was already a prominent economist and well-known in the economics community, but it really always felt uncomfortable. Married, had two children, but started cross-dressing first. And there's an autobiography called Crossing, which I very heartily recommend. And and so then gradually that, that wasn't enough. And eventually a full transition followed. But in the meantime, the family, and it wasn't, I mean, the wife was part of it, but it was particularly the sister and the mother wanted to get her committed and declared of unsound mind and tried to stop it. And it was actually the economists who <laughs> stopped this. And so she was arrested at a meeting of the American Economics History Association, carted off to the mental 
asylum, and eventually the economists got her out, and she became a hero and has been living as a woman for now lo these many years. So anyway, I was invited to write for a fest trip for Deirdre, and I decided to write about that book and about how it relates to the more recent trans scholarship, which was very interesting for me because I got I teach feminist philosophy and I recently started to teach trans feminism, so I, I got a lot of understanding of that. But anyway, as as I started writing it, I I did think, well, what about myself? And I really think I, I grew up in a you know single sex school, which was a good thing because women were allowed to play all the parts, as it were. And I play, I acted in drag for most of my acting career because I was taller than most and I was, you know, good at these male roles. And I thought about that a lot as time went on. And I thought on the one hand, I really don't identify as male. I identify as a cis, you know, straight woman. But on the other hand, there's something in me that also identifies as a man. I liked playing captains of industry, presidents of the nation, et cetera, et cetera. And so in those respect, I, I've always identified very male. My style and argument is famously pretty aggressive. People at the law school say, oh, she's one of the boys. You know. So and yes, I mean, in all of us, there's this complicated indeterminacy. And my, you know, I'm, the way I dress usually is very femmy. I have mm-hmm. curly blonde hair, you see. But the way I talk, the way I think and so on, I probably, culturally, it's more male. And so, yes, I think it's, important to explore these things. And of course, some of it might just be because that was what was demanded by what was around me. But I think it was also because my father wanted me to be, in certain respects, a man, namely somebody who succeeded, somebody who aspired, and somebody who got to the, got to the top in her profession. And he encouraged that and brought that out in me. And then he took me shopping. And what I learned from him was you should shop for the most far out clothes that you can get away with and then you should wear them with, with with joy and so I always chose things like a pink mini dress and and so that's what I liked and then my father took great pleasure that I mean, he he could get away with wearing fancy fabrics and fancy neckties but as a big shot lawyer he couldn't really dress in a very flamboyant way. He couldn't wear a pink mini dress is what you're saying. He didn't want the mini dress, but he would have wanted something much more far out. Uh, He had a great collection of suits. I think what he loved was to see me show up at the Practicing Law Institute in my pink mini dress because it was an emblem of daring that Mm. he was was restricted. He couldn't do that, but he liked it when people were daring. And so I've always tried to do that for my own colleagues. And you know, in the, in a law school, dress is really very bad. People have to wear, you know, a white shirt and a dark suit. And if you're male or female, that's basically what you have to wear. So I always come to the law school discussion groups and workshops wearing something like the pink mini dress, just to give my colleagues permission, because I'm, you know, one of the sort of defining people in the law school. So if I can get away with it, then they can too. All right. I really like. And women can get now, right now, women can get away with more than men can, which is another issue. I think little boys are still very constrained. I've heard mothers of little boys talk about, oh, my child wanted a lavender lunchbox and the other boys teased him. So, you know, men are very constrained in what Mm -hmm. they can be. And I think we, we have to change that. 
If I can sort of bring us slowly to our conclusion here with what feels like, in a way, uh, one of the most urgent questions for me or urgent dilemmas as I think about this is I look at the uh, virulent campaign against trans people that threatens me, that threatens us all. And I see the politics of disgust at play, and it seems like the visceral pull of disgust is incredibly strong and an incredibly effective, if evil, political principle to organize around. And it feels like the opposing principle of humanity doesn't have that same rhetorical snap to it. And that feels like a a real practical problem that haunts me. (laughs) You know, every day, I'm curious if you have any any thoughts. I don't know. I mean, I I think... Truthfully, I don't believe this is going to win. I think this is we've come much too far down that road of inclusion. And look at the way the Respect for Marriage Act passed in the Congress with many, many Republican votes. People know that the you know the surveys tell them that like 75% of people under the age of 35 support same-sex marriage. Now, trans issues people are not quite up to speed on yet. They don't really know enough people, but it, it will happen in time. See, I'm much more pessimistic, I guess, about feminism because I think the equality of women threatens male power in the way that the equality of same-sex relationships does not threaten the power of straight people. In other words, I mean, here's an an analog. I had a a colleague who wrote an article called Racism and Sexism, and this was way back in the 70s, and he said, well, sexism will be harder to eliminate than racism because there's no concept of the real white that stands to racism as the real man stands to sexism. Now, I think he was sort of wrong about race, but I think he is that same sort of thing is correct about sexual orientation. That is, there's no such thing as the the real straight man that's defined by denigration and subordination of same-sex relationships. And people just don't feel that. They feel, well, they're next door, but what does that have to do with me? And uh, and I I do feel that people are understanding. And and the politics of humanity is really big in this because it means you learn to know people and you learn to imagine what it's like either to be them or what the most most successful in queer politics has been to imagine being the parent of such a person. They found that imagining yourself being in a same-sex relationship was too threatening and too, too, too hard. But anyone can imagine that your child might turn out to be gay or lesbian, and you would love that child, and you would want to support that child. And all over the country, now that kids are coming out at an early age, people know these kids, and they know them as kids of loving parents. And so all of this has happened, and that's why young people really don't want to discriminate against gays and lesbians. Now, trans people, I think it's harder, because people, as I said, they can't wrap their minds around it yet. But as they get to know more trans people, they will realize that it's not threatening in the way they think. I do have relatives, and they're very educated people who say, oh, I wouldn't want to be in the bathroom with a man. Well, of course, the thing is, they're not men. That's the first thing to say. They're now women. But if they won't believe that, if they think you have to be defined by your gender assigned at birth, they don't know who these people are. People are just very timorous. But once they get to know more people... And they do understand the job of loving parents is to support the child that they have and seek the flourishing of that child. Then I think that issue is eventually going to 
come in, into focus as, as the sex, sexual orientation one, to a great extent already has. So I don't know, but I think the, the question of whether women are going to be equal in the workplace, to me, is the toughest one, because the fact is that if women are going to be equal in the workplace, that means men are going to do worse, because women entering the workplace, somebody's got to lose out. It's not a you know win-win situation, because there are only a certain number of elite positions, and people feel that. They also know that in a marriage, which in the majority of cases will be between a cis man and a cis woman. They want somebody to do all the work. They want somebody to be the help me. And they don't get that anymore. And so people are feeling very, very threatened. So I feel like that issue has not changed. And when I started out, you know, thinking about these things in the 70s, I thought the time would never come when same-sex relations would be legalized. But I also did think that the time was at hand when abortion rights would remain legal forever women were owners of our own bodies. You know, but that one is much more sticky. It's gone backwards. But the other one, I think it's precisely because treating other people well, people in the other group well, doesn't ask you to change. You can just go on your merry way. But treating women with justice asks you to change, take on more childcare, more elder care, give up certain elite positions in the workplace because they're women who are better. And of course, women are out scoring men academically in every country in the world, and they have to think about that. So anyway, that's the issue that I think is, you know, the once and future horrible issue that we have to face. Well, I really appreciate everything you had to share with us and our listeners today. I really appreciate you coming on. Do you have any uh, forthcoming work you'd like our listeners to look forward to? Well, I think the animals book, you, you know, you should look that up because it's only been out for about six months, so it's pretty new. But I am writing this book about Benjamin Britten and the War Requiem. About first half of it is about Britten's life and other works addressing issues of war and peace. And it has a lot in it about Britten's life and about his wonderful relationship with Peter Pierce's 39-year same-sex partnership in the middle of the most persecutory era of Britain. So I think that's actually would be, be very interesting for people. I'm just finishing it up now, and then OUP will publish it. So it's more than a year off, but it will be out there eventually. Incredible. So listeners, look for Martha's work on animals and on Benjamin Britten. Thanks again for coming on the show. And to all of you out there, Shavuotov. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this a great deal. 